to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Okay, today's reading is from Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17 and Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 21. This can be found on page 12 in the bulletin or uh, in the Bible. It can be found um, starting on page 984 in the the blue Bible in front of you. And then uh, the Ephesians passage is on page 978. And uh, recently Darwin spoke about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And uh, over the next 30 minutes, we have the privilege of hearing the reading and preaching of the word of God So let us as a congregation um, give ear and listen to the preached word of God and really enjoy and drink deep from this fountain and taste and see that the Lord is good together. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive and above all these put on love Which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then Ephesians five fifteen through 21, and this is on page 978. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we we thank you that you seek us out to make us worshipers. Lord, as we have even considered in this series, we, we know you alone can make us worshipers. You alone can fix our hearts upon you, Lord. You alone can show your glory to us. You alone can give us hearts that are affectionate, that that adore you, that...
cherish you, that love you. And Lord, you must continually, continually work in us. We must continually have the work of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, we we grow cold so quickly, so easily, so completely, so surely, if left to ourselves. And Lord, we our hearts are hardened by sin, apart from your Spirit upholding us. Lord, we pray that we, as, as a whole church, would continually plow up our hearts through our own meditations and your word, through our own prayers, through our own interaction, and through public worship and teaching. Lord, that our hearts will constantly be nourished and fed and opened up to bow down before you, to rejoice in you, to trust you, to be in awe of you, to be amazed at you. Lord, these these just don't they don't happen to human beings apart from your grace and power. We we by nature do not give thanks to God, but we are idol factories. We worship anything and everything but you, Lord. We fix our hearts on anything but you if left to ourselves. But you have brought us to yourself through Christ. You have revealed a beauty and a glory unimaginable in Christ. And so, Lord, we are hopeful that you will continually continue to do this, continue to form us as your people. We will be a people that adore you, that are exhilarated, that, Lord, give you, ascribe to you, in the words of the psalmist, the glory that is due your name. Lord, fix our hearts. We thank you that you will do this continually in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most uh, interesting passages, I think, is found in Psalm 22, which is a psalm about Jesus' death. It's the psalm that we think about when we think of a, a psalm that is somehow giving us a picture of of Jesus' death. It has as its beginning, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the very psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. But in verse 3 of that psalm, we have this amazing statement that, Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. Or it could be translated, You dwell in the praises of Israel. Of Israel. I love that because it, it shows that God, you might say, gravitates toward praise. He leans in toward praise. He loves to be in the midst of his people as they praise. It's, it's really a promise. You come praising, you come adoring, and I will be there, giving myself to you. Uh, it's, I think it would be good to couple that with that great statement in Isaiah 57, verse 15, where he says, I dwell in a high and lofty place and with him who is brokenhearted and contrite of heart. And I think the two are connected because it's the humble and the brokenhearted that have begun to experience the freedom of looking out from themselves to trust in this great God, to see His glory and beauty and feast upon that glory and beauty because they they so desperately need it. 
it's really the humble and the brokenhearted that only find exhilaration and joy in Him because they're depending on Him and they believe in His goodness and they're trusting in that goodness, looking away from themselves. And so we find ourselves nourished by His glory and greatness, sustained by it, transformed by this. So Psalm 100 says, come into His presence with thanksgiving. That that must happen if He's going to dwell in the praises of Israel. But it's it's a glad expectation that we could all have to, to know that we're coming together and He will dwell in our praises. That this is a place of mercy, a throne of grace, uh, uh, where He pours Himself out richly. For whom? For dependent people that come to be nourished by this great God. So, as I've said before, I used to think of it as a very holy thing to say, and, and it'd usually be said like this, and it's been, could have been said by me like this, I'm sure I've said it. You know, it's not what, you don't come to get something at worship, you come to give something at worship. And that has that holy sound like, yeah. You know, and then you start thinking about it, you think, well, what am I going to give him that he has not given me? You know, I, I, I come, as John Piper talks about future grace, he, he talks about the a possible problem with the idea of gratitude that we think gratitude is kind of our way to pay back. You know, he does something for me and I pay him back with gratitude or that phrase in the hymn that we like so much, oh, to grace, what a debtor I am. As though, if it's misunderstood, that I'm paying back for all the grace he's given me. Now, I need more grace. And then after that, what do I need? More grace. What after that? More grace, more grace, more grace, more grace. It's in one sense, it's all receiving, you know. It's always running after to be satisfied in his goodness and greatness. And this is what praise is. It's feasting, feasting upon him. And he loves for us to slake our thirst on his glory. He loves for us to be satisfied in his beauty and greatness. He dwells in the praises of Israel and the praises of his people. This is his throne room where he's truly exalted. Interesting that his throne room is in heaven, but he's enthroned on the praises of his people. So we share in the throne room of heaven. We become a part of the throne room of heaven. When we enter into the praises of the beings in heaven, we're caught up into heaven. A glorious realization that we're already there in a sense. We're already participating in that life. We're already seeing something of the same glory as those who are before his throne there. Well, we have talked uh, so far in this passage, uh, we we talked the first week about being filled with the Spirit, which is there in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, how the Spirit brings to us and he fills us with the, the fullness of God and the fullness of Christ. And he fills us with a new obedience. And, and he fills us so that we are able to do battle against the enemy. Then we began last week talking about how worship is God-centered. And secondly, that it's life-pervasive. 
passages like uh, that we're to give thanks always for everything, or in Colossians, that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I want to touch on two more aspects that are laid forth here, and there are many other things that you could say about worship, of course. But uh, these two things in particular, that it's not only God-centered and life-pervasive, but it's Christ-centered, or you could say gospel-centered. All worship must have Christ as its center. Uh, we don't worship. Uh, that, that's what separates us from any other worshipers in the whole world. We don't just say, I mean, emphatically, we do not say that it doesn't matter, just like, say, AA says, whatever higher power you want, doesn't matter. Just pick a higher power, name your higher power, give whatever attributes you want to your higher higher power. It doesn't matter. Make him up on the spot if you want. Just have a higher power of some kind, some description. We say there is one higher power, power, and this one God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to God. There is no other God but the God who's shown himself in Jesus Christ. And so all worship must focus upon Christ because Christ is the major revelation of the beauty of God. And if we are to ignore Jesus, we ignore the major showing of God to us in, in Christ. He is. No one has seen God at any time, but John says... Uh, Jesus Christ has exegeted or he's an exposition, an explanation, an unveiling of this God to us. And so Christ becomes the center uh, of worship. And the Father points us to this. It says in the, earlier in this very letter to the Colossians that he has so acted in Christ so that Christ would be preeminent in all things. So that Christ would be preeminent in all things. I was sitting there trying to find the phrase in Philippians chapter 1. Sorry. Uh, So he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, resurrected that in everything he might be preeminent. Who is making him preeminent? Well, yes, us, but truly it's talking about the Father has done this. So that in everything he is preeminent. So that the focus is upon him. The whole end of history is this, isn't it? Now this is in Philippians chapter 2. So that in that final day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. And this is ultimately to the glory of the Father who has revealed himself in the Son. And when Jesus says that if... When you see me, you've seen the Father. And when he says, he who honors the Son honors the Father, and he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, it shows just how true it is that everything he did, all of his actions, all of his sacrifice, it was a showing of exactly what God is like. You've heard me say this before, but it's it's not as though the Father is pushing his son out there and watching his son sacrifice for sin and, you know, almost as though, oh, I'm glad you did that, you know. I don't know if I could have. You know, I don't, sometimes I think we have this kind of idea. Rather than, uh, as Stott in his book on the cross so well makes the point that 
It is not that God put sin off on any other creature. God took it upon Himself. For the Son is God. And God took it upon Himself to die. And so the Son shows exactly how the Father is, that the Father humbles Himself, the Father sacrifices, the Father serves and gives Himself away. That's what the Father's like, because that's what the Son is like. It's what the Son has done to show the beauty and glory of the Father. And so our focus, uh, glad focus always, is upon Christ. Now, it's interesting when he talks about hymns and spiritual songs and the like here in, in both of these passages, that earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians, there is a hymn, most scholars would say this is a hymn that Paul is has employed and, and embedded into the first chapter of Colossians. And it's the hymn that talks about Christ. He is the image, verse 15 of Colossians 1. This is on page 983, uh, if you've got the Pew Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And the way that's phrased, the way it's set forth, they believe this is a hymn. And so, even in our hymnology, the kind of hymns he's talking about are the ones that would exalt Christ, that would point to Christ. Uh, The very passage here talks about the Word of Christ in Colossians. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the Word of Christ is none other than those kinds of words that that is a word about Christ, uh, a word that sets forth Christ. Paul was able to say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that I knew nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. And that doesn't mean that he, in a narrow way, just talked about the crucifixion, the crucifixion, the crucifixion. But it meant that everything surrounded that. Everything pointed to that. It interpreted everything. It defines everything. It transforms everything. That is the centerpiece of, of all of his preaching. He summarized his preaching earlier in Ephesians by saying, God has called me to preach, what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's it. That's what I preach. That's the content of everything I I talk about. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so all of our, it's not only our preaching, but as you've seen already in what we do in terms of confession, in terms of confessing our sins, and then in our the very hymns that we use for setting forth the grace of God, it's Jesus cast a look on me. See? We're, we're, we're having Him be the centerpiece of, of our worship, the centerpiece of our adoration, the centerpiece to teach us how we can be forgiven and to deepen us in that forgiveness. And of course, the very... Uh, Statements in Heidelberg are all about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So, 
in this very context, what do we hear about? We hear about not only the word of Christ, but in verse 15 of Colossians there, we hear about let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. And then we hear about the name of the Lord Jesus in verse 17. Then in Ephesians 5, uh, it is, again, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Understanding what the will of the Lord is, that's referring to Christ. And so you, you can't get very far in any of the epistles, any of the letters, except that they, uh, they're talking about Jesus Christ. And throughout Ephesians, uh, there's this phrase in the first chapter that, that just goes over and over and over, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ. Everything's united uh, to Jesus Christ. And so keep that as, as you're coming to worship, Keep that as a central focus to say, Lord, reveal Jesus to me this Sunday. Lord, help me see Christ in the hymns. Help me see Christ in the confession. Help me see Christ in the preaching of the word. Lord, may I grow in that knowledge of the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge, Paul says. His, his deep, huge prayer that we've already talked about is that one thing. This is what I'm after. The power of the Spirit work in your heart so that you can understand the love of Christ and be filled up to all the fullness of God. He's, he said he connects the fullness of God, the embrace of God himself with this knowledge of Jesus. No Jesus, no God. <laughs> no deepening in the knowledge of his grace and goodness in Christ. No knowledge of God. But it is to be found in the Lord Jesus. And as you've heard us refer to, and I know many of you have this uh, book, but um, the children's book that is entitled, Every Story Whispers His Name. And we don't only say the New Testament, but we say everything from beginning to end in some way or another is about Christ. It, it, in some way or another, leads up to, prepares for, foreshadows Christ. And so we have this wonderful opportunity to take the lens and beauty of Christ and let it shine back into the Old Testament. Uh, and you've heard me say it before, the Old Testament never looks so good as it does now because we start seeing the beautiful features of Christ uh, shining everywhere there. So that is our prayer. When we Now when I pray, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, Psalm 119, verse 18. Many times I say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things about Christ. Because even Christ, when he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's telling them things about himself all the way through Scripture. And they say, our hearts were burning within us, you know. And later he says he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures about himself. So, the the centerpiece, the the glorious, wonderful uh, focus of our worship is Jesus Christ. And that in and of itself tells you it's about grace. It's about mercy. It's about God sacrificing himself for you. God humbling himself for you. God spending himself lavishly on you. And the good news is there's not an ogre God There's not a God who's neglected us. There's not a God who doesn't care. This is the God, right? 
This is the God who's revealed. This is what I'm like. I come and sacrifice myself and give myself away, even for sinners, so that they can have everything in heaven and earth. That's what I'm like. And there is no other God but that one. Thank God, you know, praise God. He is this God of unlimited grace. There is no limit to what he would do for his people, what good he would do for his people. Because this is who he is. He is the God who's revealed himself in Christ. Well, finally, then, uh, on this topic of, of, of this, this particular section, uh, it is, and I, I try to fool with several different words uh, on this, but because we've got God-centered and Christ-centered, uh, and I don't know that we could say other-centered because it has to be God-centered and, and Christ-centered, but at least other-oriented or other-directed or maybe the best is to say other-inclusive. You know, that we don't, you know, as though you're pushing people's face out of your way so you can get to God, you know. And it's just me and God. That's why I really don't like that there are a lot of reasons I don't like that hymn, but um, the one where I walk, and I hope this doesn't offend any of you, but I walk in the garden alone, da, 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 and the joy that we've known, no, the joy that we have, something like, no one else has ever known. Like, well, you know, <laughs> nobody else has known the joy that I have with him. Nobody knows anything about this. It's just me and God, you know. I, I'm sure if you ask the person, they say, well, that's not what I meant, you know, but it just, I don't like a sound like that, you know, where we're saying me, that, that's why monkdom, you know, being a hermit for Jesus is, is blasphemous, you know, you, 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 the more you embrace him, the more you must be driven to embrace others and to love others. Well, Three things to mention quickly about this. Our relationship to one another is in many ways the condition of our relationship to God. Now, we we tend to think, and it's true, I must be rightly related to God and that relationship to Him transforms my relationships with others. Absolutely. However, in the ongoing movement of our lives, our love to one another is a condition for our worship. It's, it's right here in Colossians because he begins by talking about being compassionate and having kindness and humility and meekness and forbearing and uh, forgiving one another, putting on love. And then he talks about teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So this idea of being committed to one another in love precedes the idea of worship. And you find this earlier in Ephesians. We talked about this several weeks ago that uh, he says, along with the saints, being rooted and grounded in the love of the saints, Ephesians 3, together with the saints and together in loving one another, then we can know the love of God or love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So there... It's, yes, we love because he first loved us, but we continue to deepen ourselves in his love only as we continue to love one another. So love for one another is absolutely a condition 
uh, without which we cannot worship Him. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, and you know that passage, many of you, that He says, if you're there and you're, you're offering His on the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave. And you think, well, you know, they can wait because I'm worshiping God. You know, that idea uh, that they're just peons. You know, they don't count. God is God. How can anybody compare to God? You know, and so you're going to stay there worshiping God. And God says, I ain't listening. You get out of here right now because your love to your brother and your relationship is a condition without which I will not be worshipped. I will not play games with you as though you're, oh, you're worshipping the God of love as you ignore your brother. Yeah, tell me about it. That's God's attitude. Oh, you love me. Oh, okay, let's talk about that. We love to play that. We love to do that. And and John makes the point, doesn't he, in 1 John 3, uh, how can we love God whom we don't see we, we say we love God whom we don't see. We don't even live, love our brother whom we do see. That, 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 that doesn't work. That's not right. John calls us a liar if we do that. Don't say you love this God if you're not committed to love one another. Now, obviously, we never will love one another perfectly. It's not saying that, but that we're committed to that love. That's why in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, he declares... I can't stand your tromping around. It's the kind of feel as though somebody's has a, a they're, they're conducting a dance at 3 a.m. in your apartment building, in the floor over you, and all you hear is just boom, 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 and you're trying to sleep. You know, there's that kind of sense of irritation from God. You're just trampling in my courts because you've got blood on your hands. Not literally, but they were ignoring the needs of the poor. And they weren't standing up for the oppressed. He said, why are you trampling in my courts? This noise, these sacrifices, I don't want these sacrifices. Sacrifices I want are humility and love and devotion to one another. Interesting, we don't have time to look there, but in both 1 Peter 2, the first verses of 1 Peter 2, and in James 1, he talks about putting away all the malice and evil that we have toward one another in order to receive the word. You'd think, I've got to have the word to put away evil, and that's true, but there's this aspect too of siding with God against evil and submitting to Him and being trusting in Him so that I come to His word not bound up in my commitment to to envy or jealousy or anger. Resentment toward others. But I'm at least at a point of committing myself to say, Oh, Lord, save me from this. Lord, I'm struggling with this. Lord, help me have mercy on me. Forgive me, Lord, and enable me to walk in new life. I'm struggling with my attitude. See, that's different than just, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this and he deserves it or she deserves it. And I'm, and, but I'm still going to worship God. I'm still going to have this neat relationship with Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11, they're, they're, they're faithfully doing the Lord's Supper, you know, at least as to the outward ordinance. But in the midst of the Lord's Supper, as they have the 
a love feast as a part of uh, having communion. There were people that had a lot of money that were that would bring food. There were people that hardly had anything, and they would eat these big feasts in front of their brothers and sisters and not share it. But we're having communion with Jesus. And of course, you know, Paul says, you know, because of that, some of you are dead. He's not speaking metaphorically either. <laughs> some of you have died because you would treat your brothers and sisters that way at that moment where you're expressing most deeply your love to Jesus. So worship is about loving one another. It's the condition by which we worship in in many ways. It's not the condition that we have to earn the right to worship. It's just so incongruous with worship. It's so unlike worship to honor and submit to and entrust ourselves to this God of love while we are committed not to love others. Um, Then the very act of worship has to have one another as part, uh, uh, have regard to one another. Because he says here, in uh, the first passage in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The same thing in Ephesians, uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. And you think of a, there's a psalm like Psalm 30 that begins, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me, etc. Then he changes to the second person. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. You see, he's worshiping God and in the next breath he's saying, sing to him, let's sing to him. Let's, let's love Him. Let's trust Him. There are these constant addresses in the Psalms that aren't addressed to God. They're addressed this way. And so this, Paul writing here is just expressing what's always there in the Psalms. This constant worship and love to God and yet drawing others into it as well. Uh, interesting how Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that we're not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together uh, but to uh, encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, it doesn't mean that when they get together, they're just breaking into small groups and telling each other to love others. It means in their very worship, in their very adoration of God, it trains them and forms them to love one another, to care, to be devoted to love and good deeds. Uh, John Frame has, has written this in his little book on worship. The best way for us to love one another in worship is to share the joy of true worship without compromise, a joy focused on the good news of salvation so that we are encouraging one another to worship. We're calling one another to worship. We're trying to set the pace, each one of us, so that it might draw others into worship as well. We're never to be unmindful of one another, even in the act of worship. And then, of course, as I've already alluded to in Hebrews 10, it's not only that it's the condition of worship, the very act of worship has regard to others, but then it's the very result of worship. Because we see His glory and beauty flowing from that is this greater and greater commitment to love and good deeds. True worship, 
truly seeing God's beauty and glory, truly seeing the gospel will have the effect of deepening our love for one another and for a lost world. It must. It must. Because that God is focused on loving others. That God is committed to gather in His sheep. That God is missionally oriented. And we can only ignore who He is and deny who He is if we're not going to be committed to this love. And so, in worship, we have the glorious opportunity to be formed by Him, to submit to His hand, uh, to, to be recalibrated by God, to align ourselves to His love, to, to be tuned to Him, to be equipped by Him, and be, to, to cultivate likeness to God, to receive His medicines and treatments and adjustments and procedures of worship. We come here to be formed, as I said weeks ago. We come to see His glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, so that we will walk in that very glory. We come to see His story so that our story becomes a part of His his story. And I want to close by reading a little piece of this book that's really moved me deeply, Terrify No More. It's by uh, Gary Hagen. Uh, I guess it's, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but um, he's the head of International uh, Justice Mission. And this book is about how they rescued um, a group of almost uh, 40 young girls from sexual slavery. Girls who have been kidnapped abandoned by their parents, different means to be uh, trapped in this horrible, horrible thing. Girls uh, younger than you can imagine. Well, listen to some of the things that Gary has said, but I want you especially to hear how beautifully he puts what walking in love is like. And I want to propose to you that only people who are worshiping a glorious God and are being amazed at Him and adoring Him can have this kind of attitude toward doing good. He said, They suffered, these girls, because other men and women with names and faces chose to provide shelter and protection for the abusers, which are like the police. At the end of the day, they suffered because the rest of us let it happen. He talks about the God who could be found as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. The more I've come to know him, the harder it's become for me to ask such a God to explain where he has been when he sees suffering. And I certainly have been there. The more I've come to know him, the harder it's become to me to ask such a God to explain where he's been. In fact, surprisingly, I don't generally hear the victims of abuse doubting the presence of God either. Much more often I hear them asking, where have you been? Where were you? Even the bullies and tormentors of our world know that they never have enough power or force to withstand even a fraction of what people of goodwill could, by God's grace, bring to bear against them. And thus the pain of the victims question, for they suspect that their suffering is of the cruelest kind, the kind that is unnecessary. The deepest hurt comes not from the injury itself, but from the knowledge that they are so despised by some who would will their suffering and so unloved by others as to be unmoved by their suffering. And it all need not be so. I tell you, worship prepares.
prepares us to be those courageous people that will not take it on behalf of other people. True worship changes us so that we have compassion and we can't ignore them. He says, that talks about the joy that arrives when we decide to show up, when we find our own active place in the struggle against evil and discover the transforming power of life the divine has granted to mere mortals. Then he gives this uh, illustration of his twin daughters begging and begging and begging to ride horses. And so for the longest time, they ask and ask and ask. And finally, uh, he's able to get them. He had ridden horses before, and he rides up on a horse, and they're standing there. And he says, they just immediately said, you do it. You do it. They didn't want any part of it. You know, like they see this big horse. They see it's, how huge it is, how strong it is. Too dangerous. I don't want a part of it. Okay. Well, he talks to them and uh, gets them up on the saddle and gives them a ride, and, and of course, they get, they get into it. Um, and he says that uh, we tend to say that about God. God, you do it. <laughs> you just, we're just going to pray, and you go and do something. You, you, you take care of this. He says, many times we miss out on this joy by insisting that God do the work of goodness without us. We catch glimpses of the passionate exhilaration and beauty of confronting evil and doing good, but we lose heart, fearing the work too divine for us or the risks too great. Likewise, there are those moments when we sense the call to goodness. Our hearts are moved by the suffering of others and we're drawn to engage the struggle for rescue and love and justice. It resonates not so much as a duty, but as an honor, a gift, and the deepest satisfaction of the soul. And so our Maker has prepared it for us. That's what worship teaches us. Worship teaches us. And even in such a fallen world of wickedness and pain as this, There is joy to be extracted by getting into the saddle with our Lord, gripping the reins and riding into the battle. Indeed, it is the very reason for the journey and for our very being. And I love this this paraphrase of Ephesians 2.10. We were created for good works, prepared beforehand that we might ride in them (laughs) instead of walk in them. Worship, worship trains us to be those kinds of people. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that, as Annie Dillard says, that perhaps what we should do at worship is to hand out helmets and flares and life jackets. She compares it to a polar expedition. It's full of danger. It's full of difficulty this quest for this God that can and will shake us to our very being. Lord, we pray that we'll have that something of that desire and expectation when we come to worship, that we're coming into a place where the most amazing things happen on earth. We're coming to a place where God's glory might break out and just rip us from piece, into pieces spiritually might devastate us, that might 
renew us and transform us in ways we could never have imagined, that might draw us together as a people in ways we couldn't have fathomed, that might make us the kind of courageous people that begin to give up thing after thing after thing because we cannot not love others that are suffering, that are oppressed, that need the gospel. Oh Lord, there's no one in this auditorium that needs this more than me. Come to us, Lord, in your grace and mercy. Enable us to worship the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away